us and for us this morning, Lord. I thank you for your word, its accessibility. I pray that we would uh, open your word today with expectation, that we would honor this as the word of God, we'd submit our lives to it. We pray for courage and peace and that the power of your Holy Spirit would fill this room, the hearts, especially of those who are grieving or longing or doubting or hoping. May we come together, honor you, and receive your word together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and take a seat. It's great to see all of you today. Welcome to Emmaus Church community. Some few spaces up here. Shall I say it a third week? The best preaching's in the front every time. Uh, it's better in the front. Go ahead and um, reach under your seats if you're on the aisle. And if there's a basket there, would you, would you pan it down the aisle? There's cards in the baskets. And if this is your first time with us or your first time in a while, you'd like to update your contact information, that's super helpful to us. And uh, you can put a prayer request or any kind of a comment on that. We'll collect those cards a little bit later this morning. Also, raise your hand we'll, if you like a Bible. We'll hand out the Bibles. Uh, I hope you bring Bibles. If you don't, you're welcome to grab a Bible here. If you don't have one, take it home. We're going to be in a book that um, is not a real common, uh, not a commonly used book, I think. It's called Numbers. It's on page 111. It's the fourth book of the Bible. That's right. Give it up. Book of Numbers. It's coming soon. Page 111. Numbers chapter 25 is where we'll be starting in a second. Good. Um, I think that's it. Good. Well, welcome. So glad you joined us today, and uh, I'm super excited about this morning. There's a lot that could be said about what I'm about to say, about the passage that we're going to read together. There's a lot of words that could be shared about this, and I hope that you will share a lot of words about what I share in a few minutes with your family, with your home group later this week, in the car as you drive away. There's a lot that could be said. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk through the forest, and I'm going to start tipping over a bunch of old rocks that haven't been maybe lifted up for a while, and we're going to find that we're touching on some really culturally sensitive issues. Um, so to bring some clarity to the sermon right up front, here's what I plan to do. I want to share three words with you. Essentially, the sermon can be boiled down to just three words. Um, and I'm going to share two of them up front, then I'm going to tell you two stories, and then we'll bring the third word in at the end. All right? So that's where we're going. First, a word... Uh, a word this morning about violence. The Bible is full of violence. We try to scrub it out. We prefer the nice stories, the friendly stories. We like the stories about Jesus welcoming children you know, to him when everybody else says, no, he's not for the kids. We like the stories about Jesus feeding 5,000 people who are hungry. We love those stories. We like the story about Jesus meeting the woman at the well who's ostracized. Nobody will talk to her, but Jesus will talk to her. Isn't that a wonderful story? We love stories like that. Um, we, we like the nice stories, but the thing is, all around the nice stories, the stories that make the children Bible editors cut, for the children's Bibles, all around those stories are a bunch of other stories which are often pretty disturbing. And one of the reasons that they're often disturbing to our culture, our sensitivities, is because they're just so violent. A couple examples. We just celebrated Christmas, which is the story of God coming to earth as a baby boy, and we all celebrated that in our cozy sweaters with our hot chocolate. And we probably had little models of that story set up in our, in our houses, little nativity sets. 
Well, right after that story is a story about the Jewish king who hears about the birth of Jesus, feels threatened that here's the birth of a new king, and dispatches his soldiers to kill all the children in Bethlehem under the age of two. It's just so violent. It's just so violent. Another example, uh, according to church history, one of the little children that Jesus welcomes to him, when the disciples say, no, no, push the kids back, one of the kids that actually comes and is supposed to have sat on Jesus' lap while Jesus shares the, the, his love and grace with the children, one of those little boys was named Ignatius. Ignatius grows up, becomes a leader in the Christian church, and because he won't denounce his allegiance to Jesus in favor of the Roman emperor, he is brought into the Colosseum and he is killed by lions. It's just really violent. I was reminded of this when I was traveling in Spain in September and I was spending some of the afternoons praying in these old churches who, to my surprise, were not avoiding some of the violent scenes from Scripture, but in fact were featuring these violent scenes from Scripture in the front of the worship space. And I thought, I can't imagine. I mean, I'm praying about the next move for us as a church and thinking about what, would, what kind of a building could we build. And I can't imagine a modern worship space in our country featuring some of these violent images that were featured in the churches that I saw, like, you know, graphic images of Jesus' crucifixion on the cross or images like the lamb being slain, blood coming out of the lamb's breast to fill the chalice or any of the images of Jesus' disciples being killed or the prophets being sawn in two before them or the early Christians in the Colosseum with the lions after them. Many modern worship centers in our country don't even have a cross um, in the front of the church because it's seen as uh, repelling. It's kind of too offensive. Um, and I think that's really ironic. I think it's ironic because have you seen the kinds of television shows we watch right before we go to bed? I mean, they're just full of violence, like sadistic violence. And the, the stories that we pay money to see in movie theaters are just, just really violent. And the, the, the video games that kids play are really violent. It's, it's, it's like we're, we're okay with violence apparently at some level, specifically like the level of entertainment, but we have a really hard time reconciling God and violence, don't we? That's, we just don't really know what to do about God and violence. It's hard to know what to do with that. Here's a second word. A word about apathy. First word's violence, second word's apathy. Apathy kills is what I want to say. A lack of passion is at least as powerful as a lot of passion. If you're talking to somebody about their work or about their summer break or about their marriage or about their spirituality and you discern from them a lack of passion, uh, even something maybe you think they'd be generally positive about but there's just nothing there, it's very natural to go, what's wrong? What's going on there? What's the problem? Apathetic football coaches don't lead well. Apathetic teachers don't inspire kids to learn very well. Apathetic workers don't do good work. They don't do work that lasts. It's because apathy kills. And I think that all of us probably at times war against this, this pull towards apathy. Uh, even people who are naturally more passionate than others, I think, can experience swings towards I just don't really care as much anymore. I'm aware of this battle personally. I'm also aware of this battle in the church generally, and I'm concerned that the church in America has become very apathetic specifically about 
honoring God, specifically when it comes to honoring God. We're a relatively casual culture, right? Especially in California, we prioritize comfort. We pay for it. We value it, and that's not necessarily bad. But sometimes uh, I think what's really going on, if we're honest, is that we just don't care so much about honoring God. We can be pretty apathetic. So we're in a series. This is week three of a series called Story, When God Writes You In. And it's just a collection of stories which have shaped some of us personally. Uh, they've had a, these stories have had a powerful impact on our life. In other words, at some point, God confronted us, encouraged us, or revealed himself to us through these stories. And these ancient stories written a long time ago on the other side of the world became our stories. It's like God wrote us in to these stories. So maybe you have a favorite Bible story that if I asked you, you would tell me, well, this is my favorite story because this story encouraged me or this story challenged me or this story inspired me. Today, I want to share with you one of my favorite stories, but it's a story that confronted me. It's a story that took me to the mat. It confronted my attitude at a really critical time in my life when I needed that kind of adjustment. And so as a, real, as a consequence, this has become a really important story for me. This is no bedtime story. This is no feel-good story. It's not one of the intellectual, intellectually stimulating stories that Jesus tells in the form of parables. This is like a smash-you-in-the-mouth story. This is like a linebacker coming through story. Uh, it's a confrontational story. It's also a really difficult story. We normally tell stories that have really clear-cut morals. Like there's a good guy and a bad guy, and there's a conflict, and then there's a struggle, and then there's a resolution, and there's a clear lesson that we pull from the story, and now it's time to kiss her and tell her good night, right? Tuck your daughter into bed, and, and that's it. It's a, it's a really simple lesson extracted from the story. This story is much more difficult. In fact, I was reading ancient Jewish rabbis' commentary on this story, and I was surprised to see that there's even disagreement, like before Christ, there's disagreement on how to interpret this story. Is the hero of the story actually a hero? Or maybe he is, but did he do the right thing in the end? So there's a lot about the story that's difficult to understand. There's plenty of the story that's offensive and plenty of the story that is uh, disturbing. One writer calls the story one of the most indelicate texts in Scripture. There's also a part of the story that is intensely challenging. And I invite you to consider that today. My hope for us this morning is that we can, we can walk through this story okay with the fact that there are parts that we won't like, there are parts that we won't understand, um, but still be willing to be challenged by a clear demonstration of devotion to God as, um, in, in, the per, in the form of a person named Phinehas, a man named Phinehas. So here's the story. It's in Numbers chapter 25. Um, this is how it goes. While Israel was staying at Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices of or to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves or joined themselves to the Baal of Peor. That's the name of this other de deity. And the Lord's anger burned against them. Four quick comments. One, this is at the end of the 40 years of wandering around in the desert. Israel is coming out of the desert into some occupied territories and, and being exposed to new uh, systems of belief, other deities. Second comment, this is the first time in the history of the Israelite people where they, uh, they worship another deity. 
They actually worship another god other than Yahweh. A third comment, the word that is used for what the men do here is interesting because it's a word that is typically reserved for uh, female harlots, um, and now it's applied to men. So now these men, think about who this is. These are the men who were freed from slavery in Egypt. The same guys. These are the guys who went through the Red Sea. God parted the sea. These are the men that walked through the sea. These are the guys that received manna from heaven, miraculously fed and provided for in the desert by God. These are the same men, right? And now they're offering themselves to Baal, another god, through intimate temple rituals with female priests of Baal. So it's really rugged. It's a rough word. And fourth, whoops, um, so the, the very people who God rescued yoke themselves or join themselves with another God, and this pushes God to this extreme point of rage. We don't really see this level of rage before this point in the Bible. The Hebrew literally says that uh, it, it talks about the reddening of his nose, uh, which is, we would say in our language, maybe his face like f- turned red with rage or flushed with, with rage, all right? So it's a very unusual story, a lot of firsts. Continuing with the story, here's verse 4. The Lord said to Moses, who's like the leader of the people, take all the leaders of these people, kill them, and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to Israelites, judges, kind of the next level of management, each of you must put to death those of your people who have yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. Now, one of the problems that people have, I mean, I was just talking to somebody yesterday. Um, I was in a big, big baseball thing yesterday. I was talking to all sorts of people. And um, one of the problems that people continue to say to me that they have with the Bible is it's just so, God's so violent. God, like, they have a problem with the fact that God would say you should kill somebody else, like another, another group of people. Uh, we have a problem with that. I, I, that's really difficult. It seems so wrong for God to... This scene's even worse than that because this scene is God telling God's people to turn their sword against their very own people. It's really, really rough. Verse 6, then... Here's the, here's the big scene. Then an Israelite man brought into the camp a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping. Why are they weeping? Because they're repenting. At the entrance to the tent of meeting. That's like their mobile church. It's like the tabernacle, right? So they're repenting at the face of their place of worship where the presence of God is believed to be. And this man brings into the camp this other woman and parades right in front of everybody. When Phinehas... Son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw this. He left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and followed the Israelite into the tent. He drove the spear into both of them, right through the Israelite man and into the woman's stomach. And then the plague against the Israelites was stopped. But those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. This, believe it or not, is actually a very restrained recounting of this most offensive act that's recorded in in the Bible up to this point. The very acts which have angered God and for which the whole nation of Israel is now repenting and weeping in the front of their space of worship are here repeated by a single individual in mockery of God, in mockery of the people's repentance, not as they were doing the day before in the temple of Baal, but now we're going to do it right in the worship space of Yahweh, of of God, the tabernacle of God. So, seeing this indescribably offensive act, 
Phinehas, who's the grandson of Aaron, who's the very first Hebrew priest, enters into the, temp, the tent of meeting and he responds violently to the offense. The Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites. And then here's the, the sentence that is so challenging to me. Since he was as zealous for my honor among them as I am, I did not put an end to them in my zeal. Therefore, tell him I'm making a covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of a lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. He was zealous. He was passionate for God's honor. As zealous for God's honor among them as God himself and the consequences or the results of that are two. There's this, there's this promise of everlasting peace that is given and an everlasting priesthood, which is really interesting. So somewhere in the world is a faithful minister of the gospel whose great, 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 great times 50 grandfather is, is, is Phinehas, right? All right. Nobody walked out. That's, that's pretty amazing. <clears throat> God wrote me into this story when I was 21 years old. I met a guy in the weight room seven years older than me. His name was Nathan, just like mine. And so we became friends. We started lifting weights together and then uh, going to breakfast occasionally together. And um, it wasn't long before I realized that Nathan had this uncommon intensity of devotion to Jesus. Just uncommon. And it challenged me. It wasn't a loud, enthusiastic, flamboyant, really high energy, in-your-face kind of enthusiasm or, or uh, um, devotion. It was more of like a steady, quiet, thoughtful, but fierce, fierce reverence for Jesus. And I was struck by how carefully Nathan would read the Bible. He would get captivated by a story, and he'd just soak in it for days. And, and then he would memorize it, and then he would retell the story while we're lifting weights together. And he would retell it, and he would, the words would just come out like they were alive and like they were wonderful to him. And one morning he showed up and he said, have you ever read the story of Phinehas? He would say that. Phinehas. Uh, no, I never heard of that story. He was as zealous for the honor of God as God himself. <laughs> right? He's just, he's just like affected by it like so powerfully and I'm just looking at him just going, man. So I'd go home and I, I, read, I read Numbers 25 and then I came back the next day and we worked out. We talked about it together for weeks and I was inspired and I was humbled. I was inspired, and I was humbled. I was inspired to simply honor God more wholeheartedly than I, than I did, to be zealous for God's honor. Isn't it easy to slip into obeying God or doing the right thing for our sakes? Isn't that easy? It's easy to start doing what we should do because we believe at some point it will be good for us. It will work out for us. It will help me, in other words, to obey God, which happens to be true, right? But the primary reason that I should obey God is because of God. It's not because of me. So I was challenged at this point, and this really changed things for me. So now the question about worship ceased to be, did I like the music, or did it feel good to me? It was, did I honor God in worship? 
And the question about church wasn't so much, did I like this sermon or do I feel like going today? It was, did I honor God? Just really simple, right? Was it about me or was it about God? And everything started to fall into place um, behind that, like the, my use of money. You just, once you start this road, you can't, you can't, nothing is, is discluded. Is that a word? Everything is, everything's fair game. The way I spent my money, does it honor God? The things I'm looking at with my eyes, does it honor God? The way I treat women, I'm 21 years old in college, am I honoring God? How I handle relational conflict, am I gossiping? Am I forgiving people when they offend me? Am I honoring God? So I was so inspired by this story, so challenged by it. I was also really humbled Here's how I was humbled. I was convicted about a basic apathy that I had allowed to develop towards sin in my own life. I had sort of slid into its sin as no big deal. Sin as, well, God's going to forgive it anyway. And I was challenged by this story to deal with my own rebellion more violently. And by that, I don't mean that I was uh, beating myself up with guilt I don't mean I was flogging myself or hurting myself. I simply mean by that word violent, I was challenged to be more decisive, more aggressive, more intentional, more purposeful. In other words, instead of just being passive about situations or attitudes in my heart that I knew did not honor God, I was challenged to deal with them more decisively with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength like Jesus instructs us to. Do you follow me? So not just gently setting aside temptation for later, right? But flinging it, as as St. Benedict says, flinging temptation as far away from my heart as possible. That's dealing with it. No, just aggressively, decisively. In other words, I realized that there were parts of my life that uh, I was much more willing to be passionate and aggressive and intentional and driven about. Um, there, were parts, there were parts of my life where I just simply wouldn't tolerate this. And there were things for which I'd work really, really hard for, right? Passion has not typically been a problem for me. But my devotion to Jesus lacked this kind of fire. It just frankly lacked it. I needed to be more like Phinehas. Okay, now today, this is challenging. This story is so difficult because we live in a world where people are motivated, so they say, by their religion to commit horrible acts of violence. And so the story of Phinehas probably feels to us kind of gross, maybe a bit confusing. And the idea of responding to the dishonor of God violently is perhaps not the best choice of words. But I chose that word because I'm hoping it will startle us out of our apathy. And I use it because I think that it's appropriate, at least for me. Maybe it feels too dangerous. Maybe it feels too extreme. But I need to regard sin in my life as dangerous. Otherwise, I will get too cozy with it. And I need to recognize the the extreme nature of the teachings of Jesus. Otherwise, I turn Christianity into a religion about being nice. Jesus didn't talk about being nice. He said stuff like, pick up your cross and follow me, right? He said stuff like, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. 
He said some really intense things that, frankly, don't get me up off the couch if I'm sort of living in this apathy, this sort of passive, less than all-in kind of attitude about it. It's really hard. We were t- what were we talking about? Oh, yeah, a friend of mine yesterday, his kid got hurt wrestling, and he's like, it wasn't the other guy's fault. They were just wrestling. That's just what you do. And I, was like, and I said this. I said, yeah, it's, it's hard to wrestle halfway, isn't it? You kind of have to be all-in. This is like Christianity. You kind of have to be all in because otherwise it just doesn't work. How do you sort of follow somebody? That's, it's, it just doesn't even make sense. So as I said earlier, this sermon's about three words. The first word is violent. The second word is apathy. And here's the third word. It's love. It's love. Overused, underunderstood. The word is love. If I were on a desert island and I had one page of the Bible... It was page 111. Somebody flew over and dropped one page to me. It was Numbers 25. I had the Phineas story. All I had. Well, I would have an awesome story about passionate devotion to God. But I probably would respond to that story through some overly aggressive acts of violence towards people that didn't necessarily agree with me. In other words, it's really important to understand that Numbers 25 is early in the story. As I emphasized last week, this is at the very beginning of the story. God hasn't, in other words, God hasn't revealed all about himself yet. He hasn't revealed much about himself yet. The point of the story, the emphasis in the Numbers 25 story, is really about the first commandment. You shall have no other gods besides me. That's the problem in the story, right? That's what they're wrestling with, the very first commandment. A lot has been revealed about God since then. So we need to read the story as much as possible within its own context, yes, but we need to respond. Here's important. It's really important. We need to respond to this story in light of the full revelation of God in Christ, right? Jesus, on the night he would be killed, and the night he would experience ultimate violence, said this, a new command I give you. Okay, Numbers 25, what's the problem? Commandment number one. Here's Jesus, a new command I give you. We're keeping all the others. The original 10 stand, and here's another command. Love one another as I have loved you. He's just washed their feet. He's just about to go die for them. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then, to push us even farther, earlier in his ministry, he said this. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. So while I'm challenged by Phinehas in Numbers 25 to be zealous for God, on one hand, I am called by Jesus Christ as a follower of Jesus Christ to express my zeal for God by loving people. How should I express my love, my honor? Jesus says, by loving people, by loving all people, by loving even my enemies. Jesus' command to love and his demonstration of love for the whole world by dying on the cross, it violently confronts my selfishness. The love of Jesus violently confronts my apathy. The early church saw in Phinehas this early example of zeal for God that would be perfected in Jesus Christ. 
One early Christian pastor puts it like this. He says, If Phinehas, by his zeal in slaying the evildoer, appeased the wrath of God, shall not Jesus, who slew no other, in other words, who didn't kill anybody, but gave himself as a ransom for all, take away God's wrath for the whole world? Amen. So in conclusion, let me just say this. The most challenging part of this story is probably, gosh, what do I do with this? How do I apply this to my life? I once taught this story to a group of high school kids, and when I was done, someone said, I knew it. Somebody says something about Jesus, I'm just going to punch him in the face. Like, no, no, I can see how you got there. Let me, uh, let me revisit that again. I see how you think that. Right? But better than asking, how do I apply this to my life? Because frankly, this is nothing like your life. This is so different from your life. If you try to get a three-step process out of this, like quick and easy three-step process towards being happy, it's not going to come out of here. No, a better question is, how should I respond to this story? How should I respond? This story is in so many ways different, but what is the part of the story which is held up as good? What is the part of the story that God himself seems to honor or point out as good. Well, it's Phinehas's uh, honor for God, right? It's his zeal for God's honor. So how should a Christ follower respond to that? Well, by loving people. That's how we should respond to that, by loving people. And not just loving people, but by relentlessly loving people, by courageously loving people, decisively loving people, I will say violently, not destructively, but violently in the sense of intensely, resolutely, not for our sakes, but for God's sake, loving people. Amen? Hard word. Hard word. It's going to get harder. But we submit ourselves to the word of the Lord. And ask for grace to follow Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, to love with passion. Um, even those uh, who are offensive to us and hurt us. Let's pray for grace. I think of those, Lord, who often through their death, it seems, but they got people's attention. They... They're very, uh, their assassins were converted because they could not deal with the fact that even in violence, they were being loved by Christians, true, real followers of Jesus. And, and uh, I feel like we're far from that. I feel like I'm far from that. The courage and the strength and the resolution that it will take for me to love people as they... Uh, they hurt me and hurt you. And so I just, well, I, just, I just submit that to you, and I just say this is difficult. This teaching of Jesus is difficult, and I pray for grace to faithfully follow Jesus who uh, went to the cross and uh, addressed evil with love. Uh, may we follow Jesus uh, right in our own church, in our city, and uh, as we have opportunities around the world, God, bless, bless your people. Fill us with your spirit so we may follow you in Jesus' name. Amen.